Hello, and welcome to Unfrozen. I'm Dan Safarik. And I'm Greg Lindsay. And our guest today, Dan, is a bittersweet one for me, I must say the least. Because when you write a book about cities and air travel, you think you might have a shot at writing the best in its category. I, I thought I had a shot once upon a time. But our guest today clearly has triumphed in that field. We're very pleased to have uh, Mark Van Honecker, uh, 747 and 787 pilot and author of both Skyfaring and his latest book, Imagine a City. He's also a columnist for the FT, columnist for the NYT, uh, and, you know, frankly, the best there is when it comes to writing about the intersection of air travel and urbanization. So it's a pleasure to have you on, Mark, and I, I genuflect in your direction. You've, you've clearly triumphed in the genre. Oh, uh, well, I'm very happy to be with you both, and I, I return the genuflection. Um, you know, uh, Aerotropolis uh, was, a, was a really meaningful book for me, and, you know, to talk with anyone about skyscrapers and cities, um, especially, uh, and airplane, you know, we can add airplanes in as well. That's, um, that's, a, that's a great morning for me, so I'm really happy to be here. Well, we're, we're very happy to have you here for, for epic nerdery. Um, Dan, you want to jump in first? Sure, yeah. I mean, so first, I, I generally wanted to talk about the book. Um, and how it's organized. Um, so this wasn't at all what I was expecting when I first opened it up. I, I had sort of thought, this is going to be a sort of, um, oh, we're going to be projecting grids from space onto other grids from space. And we're going to kind of compare the urban form, um, you know, as an urban planner sees it to how a pilot sees it. It was much more personal and much, and, and, and much more, um, it delved into many more levels of detail than I, I would have expected, both in terms of scale and also in terms of personal revelation. So it was a, you know, it was a much, uh, it was a much less nerdy read than I think I was expecting, if you, if I may. And I wanted to sort of get at what inspired you to write the book, obviously, um, and also just how it was organized, um, because the the organization is not totally intuitive. You have these concepts like city of prospects, city of signs, um, and you organize the content that way. And what ends up happening is that it keeps coming back to your hometown uh, that you were, uh, that were raised in with Pittsfield, Massachusetts, and in some pretty surprising ways. So maybe you can talk a little just about, about the structure of the book and what implied you to, or what, what um, inspired you to put it together that way. Sure. Um, so I grew up, as, as you mentioned, in Pittsfield, uh, which is a small city in, in Western Massachusetts. And, you know, uh, as, as a kid, I had, I had two passions. I, uh, I was obsessed with airplanes. Uh, I really wanted to become a pilot and I made a lot of model airplanes and, 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 and really just spent a lot of my childhood looking up at, at the contrails of, of planes passing overhead on, on their way to, uh, to Kennedy or Logan. Um, and I, I was also, um, uh, almost equally uh, dr drawn to cities and to the idea of these distant cities that I would, you know, turn my illuminated globe to and uh, and kind of imagine flying to and 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 the link between uh, between airplanes and cities is. Uh, you know, is I don't need to tell you guys it's a fundamental one. I mean, planes fly to cities. Uh, it's hard to imagine uh, the air travel um, world uh, with, without uh, without large cities uh, to, to to act as hubs and, and, and as destinations. Um, so for me, those 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 passions were were inseparable, uh, and you know, man, like many kids, I I wanted to leave home um, and, and kind of make my way in the world. Um, you know, from in my personal version of that story was you know growing up as a gay kid in a small place, I wanted to, I wanted to to leave and 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 find some future for myself that I imagined could only uh, take form by putting a lot of miles between me and where I grew up. 
Um, and then I, growing up, uh, I, I eventually went away to college and then grad school and then eventually became a pilot. And I started going to cities in a way that, you know, we, we live in obviously in an urban age, I think more than, more than half of us now live in cities and by 2050, two thirds of us will. And I think it was underappreciated really that airline pilots today have an experience of cities of, of, of this urban planet that's 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 really unique in in history. Uh, we see so many cities first of all from above. Uh, we see them uh, we see them having this kind of organic and simultaneously futuristic uh, uh, form from above uh, and, and connecting to other cities through roads or rail lines that look almost biological uh, and, and yet simultaneously technical. Uh, and then, of course, we land in cities and, and we explore them and we go to them again and again, uh, not not as business travelers with a busy agenda and, and meetings and, you know, client interactions, perhaps, nor as as ordinary travelers, uh, tourists who might want to do everything they could in, in a few days in a city because they might think they will never have a chance to go again to that to that place. Uh, maybe it's a trip of a lifetime to to Rio or Vancouver or uh, or Rome and you want to do everything you can in those in those uh in those few hours and days you might have there, uh, and then as I as I started writing about about those cities, I, I found my, myself coming back again and again to Pittsfield and and to the way in which a hometown is always with you. Really, um, I remember the first time Google uh, Earth or Google Maps allowed you to have a, a you know to look to zoom into a satellite view of a of, of a streetscape, and I was living in London and on the couch uh, and was looking at that. For the first time and you know i didn't i didn't go look at table mountain in cape town or the santa monica pier or or the grids of houston or or the sugarloaf in rio or you know I, I went straight to my hometown and i looked down on that on that street in pittsfield and i i found my my house and i i looked down on the roof uh, and tried to picture where my room was under under that under its asphalt shingles and and then looked out at the lawn uh you know where my brother and i had our snow forts and which I had to mow in, the, in, in other seasons or, or rake the leaves from in another season and, and tried to, I looked down and tried to think about what time of year it was and even what time of day it was when that satellite was, was passing over. And, you know, that, that the way in which a hometown is almost, is almost always with you um, is, forms a part of this book. And it also lends itself to the, to the format, um, which, which you alluded to, uh, of, of talking about cities uh, in these, th- these broad categories, uh, which, you know, I, I often I often like the idea that a, a hometown is like a first language. Uh, so cities, I think of as in some ways, uh, you know, I was alluding a little bit maybe to, to Chomsky's idea of of, of languages, you know, the world's languages having this incredible diversity, but being formed of these quite basic units which are just rearranged, um, much less uh, much less than we might think would be required to, to create such diversity. And, and I, I like to think of cities that way. Um, as almost grammatical arrangements of these very basic forms and of and also of a hometown as a first language uh, which you might use to describe all the others so the way you know i, I talk in uh, i think in the book about that sense i have of of coming up from a, a subway station in new york um, and there's always that moment of hesitation before you decide which way to walk because you have to figure out which way is east and I, I can, you know, my better, my childhood bedroom faced east, and that's my, that's, that's really what I think of when I think of east. And I, I can almost feel that original map um, from my childhood home and my hometown, kind of swiveling until, until I can, um, until I can latch it onto the, the world I see around me, uh, the grid in New York, for example, and then I can start to walk. Um, or, yeah, you know, I went to Malacca uh, in, in Malaysia a few years ago and was walking along this, this tropical river, and, and all I could think of 
was the Housatonic, this river in Pittsfield that I grew up along. Uh, and so that, that way in which a hometown is always with you is, is very vivid to me. And, and perhaps it's most vivid to a pilot who's, who's traveled so far from it and travels so often to such different places. Um, you know, if a pilot can't escape their, their roots, then nobody, you know, no, nobody can. Uh, and, and that, that way in, in which Pittsfield, uh, returns in each chapter, sometimes just very briefly, uh, is a, is a kind of circular sort of experience that, that feels very much like, um, like my life does as a pilot. And, you know, we talked about the structure of the, of the chapters of the book, um, and, and they're slightly Calvino-esque associations. If you're, I'm sure you have many, uh, uh, readers of uh, Invisible Cities among your listeners, and uh, you know, definitely Calvino has been a major influence. Uh, but my father, my father had lived. Uh, he was born in Belgium, and then lived uh, in uh, what was then the Belgian Congo, and then in a series of cities along the northeast coast of Brazil. And, and he eventually wrote his his memoirs uh, just just for us, for his family. And he titled the uh, the chapters of his autobiography. You know, um, this. Um, the city of the bicycles, uh, which was Governor Dora Valadares, uh, or the city of the 365 churches, uh, which was, was Salvador de Bahia. And, and so that, uh, that structure feels very personal to me. And it also echoes, of course, um, the great Calvino's uh, uh, cities and names, cities and signs uh, uh, structure of, of invisible cities. That's very, yeah, and a, and a very poignant, poignant rendering of these concepts as well. I mean, I, I, I love how you've been able to, uh, you know, connect the conceptual to the personal in that way and, and in a way that's relatable to many others, including myself. You know, I, 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 I too raged at my confines of suburbia. And, uh, and yet when Google Earth became available, you know, I probably did the same thing. I was always that kid who like looked at the map and tried to project himself onto the street. And once and once uh, Google Earth became available, it was like, oh, it took away some of the magic, almost like seeing the movie version of the book, you know, <laughs> as yeah. you imagined it. It's like, oh, that's not what that guy looks like. That's not what that character sounds like. Um, it's just a little bit arresting to see that. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the, the ability to project, you know, these concepts into imagination is, is, is a really great way to hook the reader in. Um, so yeah, let's talk a little bit about you know what skyscrapers kind of meant to you as a kid. I, I'm pandering now to my at least a portion of my audience, but that that portion includes me. So I'm <laughs> happy to hear it. Yeah, so I you know Pittsfield doesn't have any skyscrapers. Uh, it has a hotel which is maybe 13 uh, 13 stories, um, and we you know we it's it's about a two hour drive two and a half hour drive from Boston and maybe three and a quarter hours from New York City. And and Boston and New York had these. Uh, obviously, Boston had this. Um, you know, it was our state capital. But New York, of course, was this. You know, it's New York. Uh, there was. I often think of how in my high school kids would often say, "Oh, they would say like, oh, you know, we're going to the city this weekend." And you know, they did not mean Boston, even though it was our, even though it was our our state capital. Uh, and and closer, they all they meant New York. And you know, even if I think about cities that were a little bit closer to us, like Springfield or Albany, you know, they had one or two skyscrapers. Albany has its um, its Empire Plaza, but the 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 to me the the importance of a city or its or the greatness of a city was was perfectly scaled by was perfectly reflected by by its skyline. Um, 
almost as if the, the, the towers of a city were like uh, the bars on a graph. Uh, and, you know, it's really funny when I first started going to, to a lot of European cities um, with my parents when I was younger, I didn't, I didn't even understand that. I, I, I didn't understand how these cities didn't have skyscrapers. And then, and my, you know, my dad explained to me, he said, well, these cities have chosen not to have skyscrapers. And I said, well, why would they do that? You know, it was, it seemed to me like, like you, it couldn't be a city without skyscrapers, and that the idea that that would be a preference uh, in some in some uh, countries or places was was bewildering to me. Now, of course, I understand uh, what people mean by it. Uh, but for me, I think the the skyscraper that's met the most is uh, what I still call the Hancock Tower in Boston. I think it's officially called 200 Clarendon Street now, um, which is that that blue uh, parallelogram uh, right on Colpus Square across across from the public library. And uh, it, it, it combined uh, cities and airplanes and skyscrapers uh, very, very effectively for me because uh, there used to be an observation deck at the top and you could go up there and look at the city, but you could also look down at Logan Airport. And they even had a, uh, 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 a speaker through which you could listen to the air traffic uh, control frequencies for the airport. And, and for me, the, some of my favorite memories of it of childhood or being atop the Hancock tower with my, with my parents and looking down at the, at those, um, you know, at the planes flying into Logan and hearing those voices of those pilots and, you know, not even imagining that I would ever, I would ever do that. Um, and then of course, years later, I, did, I, 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 now I fly to Logan often. I, I first flew there on, on the 747. And, um, when, when we first came out of the clouds and I could see the Hancock tower in the distance, as I was, uh, piloting this, uh, the 747 in, in a very different age of you know phase of my life uh it was uh it was a, a moment of of circularity and, and wonder that uh it, yeah it doesn't uh, you know that's it's like it was like nothing else it's uh it's uh it's a really special thing for me and now of course uh you know i've been doing some book events here on the west coast and in seattle a few days ago somebody asked me uh about how much cities have changed over my years of flying and and i said you know the most visual um, sense in which they've changed for a pilot is, of course, their skylines. Um, so it seems like every time I go to Miami or Dubai, it's it's been altered by something that's uh, that's arisen since I was last there. And even Seattle, I, I was speaking to this audience in Seattle, and I said, you know, I, I hadn't flown to Seattle until a few days ago. It had been a few years since I, since I'd flown here, and I was really struck by by how much the downtown had changed. And I and I wondered if I'd maybe not seen it clearly on previous visits. And they all the audience just started nodding vigorously. It's like, no, 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 it's changed a lot. Um, you know, so we are in this uh, you know age of urbanization, and uh, and a pilot gets a, a very um, unsubtle view of that. I guess I would say a very very unsubtle, very direct view of of, of cities rising around the world, literally rising. Well, I'm glad you brought up. Dubai, Mark, because I, I want to ask about this. I mean, I have a whole chapter about Dubai, obviously, in Aerotropolis and, and yeah, and the cities being built from scratch across much of Asia as well. And I mean, it's interesting. The aerial view of cities is one that I think is taught in mainstream urbanist discourse is one that is seductive and ultimately um, harmful to sort of human life, right? Like going back to Le Corbusier and this, you know, the deceptiveness of seeing the city from above and seeing that legibility. Uh, I'm sure you've read, you know, James C. Scott, you know, seeing like a state, this idea of this power from above that wants to reorder the landscape to make it visible and understandable and legible. And that, and that's sort of like a godlike power that is ultimately a destructive one. And, you know, in Dubai, and let's say the Saudis right now, because, you know, we've seen, for example, drone footage of the line, which a skyscraper that is proposed to basically run parallel skyscrapers to run 170 kilometers. 
Um, I'm curious, like your thoughts on that, on that, that God's eye view, I mean, more than a bird's eye view, that God's eye view and it's, it's power and whether, whether, you know, is it detrimental ultimately to cities as someone who is able to really straddle the two in your book between being in it on the ground and being above? Um, I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm sort of curious because we, we, it sort of merged with social media in many ways where like now this, this entire vision, particularly in the Gulf where they're building cities from scratch, where that aerial view is everything. I mean, the line is pure concept. I'm actually shocked they're building it. They're already running print ads for it in magazines. Like, do they even need to build it at this point? But, but yeah, how, how do you factor in that sort of duality of consciousness or how do you think we should approach that? I mean, I think, I think um, when I think about that duality and, I, and you know, I, I think... I think in the book I mentioned a few times about how, how deceptive in some ways that that, that view from above is, um, but I, I often I often think of it in terms of of noise. Um, you know, cities from above, from a passing airliner, um, or even even from higher up, if we think of those um, those images of those sort of scrolling images from satellites of of, of a whole line of cities along the coastline and. I mean, you could back up even further and think of, um, you know, think of the view of Earth from from the Moon and that iconic Earthrise shot. And, you know, there there there's something about there's something about the silence of that view. I mean, obviously, it's not silent from an aircraft because you can, you know, there's the aircraft noise, but but the peacefulness of the silence that cities have from above um, is, you know, is of course deceptive. Cities are not quiet are not quiet places, um, and that's kind of their point. Um, and that. That um, that dichotomy is is in many ways I think the clearest representation for me of of that difference and you know and of course that we land you know in, this is in some ways a book about flying but com, you know compared to skyfaring this is more about what happens when you when you walk out um, you know into into an airport you know, out of an airport into into the city that surrounds it um, and you know coming back to airports they are of course these globalized spaces right they are you know they have to be for everything to connect with with the planes and the and the and the people and and the the credit cards or whatever that that are used in the duty free shops and, and and they're open at all hours and and you may not even know what time it is on on a local time if you're just changing planes and and so they are these globalized spaces and then but eventually uh you know the the doors of the airport open um and you walk out into a city which is which is um, you know entirely unique and having a and having a reality which is which you can't really know much about as a traveler. Uh, I have the other aspect of that I think, um, which your question brings to mind is of course as air crews we fly to these cities again and again and we, you know I I think at one point in in when I was flying the seven forty seven to Los Angeles I. We'd been flying there for for a few years, and then we stopped for a few years, and then we started up again. And I wondered how many times I'd been to LA because I thought, oh, I've been there a bunch of times. I've got some friends there, and I've got my hikes and my bike rides and that I do. and And I thought I'd been there maybe fifteen times, and it, it was more than forty at that time. And now it's something like sixty or seventy. Um, so we do have this this sense of, of knowing these cities, but but of course we don't. Um, we don't know them in in a way that. Uh, um, is meaningful to 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 the reality of those places and their history, um, and that that superficiality and that kind of false intimacy um, is, you know, is something I wanted to capture in the book because it, it is a unique, um, you know, pilots have a, have a uniquely extreme version of that of that experience that that many travelers can probably relate to. Yeah, I mean, I think you have. A, uh, let's let's definitely take advantage of your privileged view here, which is from the cockpit, right? Uh, a lot of us have spent a lot of time on planes, but we we have you know a side view, and we're only seeing one side of the plane at a time. Um, you're obviously 
going to get the the peripheral view from the front. So what what cities do you find to be most impressive from the cockpit? And does that correlate at all with your experience at a granular level of them, you know, as a human being? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I th- one of the things that, that strikes me from above, which which also relates to your previous question, perhaps, is that you know we think of we think of cities as these you know constantly human and and, and almost definitively modern constructions. But from above, you 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 do get the sense that they were that they're often sculpted by um, by geography before they are by us. Um, you know, and obviously there are examples of places like Dubai or Vegas, which which may seem to exist in, in contradiction to their environments in some ways, but many other cities uh, uh, seem to, they see their, their locations almost seem obvious from above. Um, if you look at a river, you know, where a river meets an ocean, there's probably going to be a, a big city. And, you know, lo and behold, we find New York or, or many other examples. I often think of, of inland cities where, where two rivers meet and, and suddenly, suddenly you have uh, Pittsburgh or you have Khartoum or, or Calgary. Um, and that sense of, of following, uh, you know, one river uh, from above, from, from a great distance, from 100 miles away or so, and then suddenly seeing another river moving in from, from another direction. And you think, well, I suspect there's going to be a settlement where they meet. And, and lo and behold, there is. Um, in, terms of, in terms of that, the connection between that view and the city itself, you know, I think in many ways of Los Angeles, uh, which was, uh, you know, such a imaginatively powerful place to a kid growing up on the East Coast. You know, my parents had never been to California. I didn't go until um, until I was an adult, um, and it, you know, it had that kind of that uh, that 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 its role in the culture in American culture was obvious to me, even though I'd you know, even though I'd I'd never been there. And that sense of now, when I fly there, I, I normally fly there from London, and you know we, we take off in London and fly north over 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 Scotland and then Iceland and Greenland and and uh, across the Canadian Arctic and the Canadian prairies, and then you know through some you know pretty sparsely populated parts of of, of the United States and over the, over the Rockies and, and then over the Mojave, and, and suddenly you have this this mountain range, and behind it uh, you have this glittering glittering city. Um, and the idea that 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 the city the city is there kind of just in time it's just at the end of the con- at the end of the continent um, and, and the idea of, of of some sort of cultural energy uh, kind of flowing westwards and, and pooling there uh, is very evocative from above and of course matches pretty neatly with with at least a popular sense of the city um, I I came across a quote when I was researching the book um, from Eleanor Roosevelt who was who'd flown there. Uh, to Los Angeles at some point in the '40s, and I think I think she had a relative who lived in Pasadena, and and she remarked on 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 how striking the city was from above, and how its lights were like a, a collection of jewels below, and you know she could she couldn't have imagined how it would look now, um, and of course, you know you know weather comes into that too. I mean, many cities we fly to, you know, London being a good example, you know, it, it's it's a very striking approach, but often it's often it's cloudy or foggy, and you don't see it. Uh, course, Los Angeles, you, know, you tend to see it very clearly, uh, given, the, given the climate there. Well, that's an airport that I've flown into many, many times as I lived in LA for about uh, seven years and never, never grew tired of it. So, I, you know, I, I also wanted to find out too, you know, if there were, maybe from just a technical or operational standpoint, are there airports where if you draw the card, you're kind of like, oh no, oh no, I don't want to fly into there for either... Uh, you know, a technical operational reason from operating the aircraft, or maybe just 
don't like staying overnight in that city or the airport's inconvenient? Um, or, or do you just sort of feel neutral about most of the places because you're, you're, you're flying these routes so routinely? Uh, well, one of the most uh, one of the most interesting things about being uh, being a long haul pilot is that you you know you get to go to so many different places, um, and you know airports each airport has its own challenges. Uh, those often relate to to terrain if there's uh, you know mountains nearby or or weather if um, you know there are places that have you know heavy showers in the summer or or snow in the winter, um, and so that there is a kind of uniqueness to to each place and. And that sense of, of moving between continents and between seasons, of course, as well, where you, um, you know, you, if you move, if you fly to the Southern hemisphere, you'll, you know, you experience that, that reversal of, of seasons is, you know, it makes, it makes it quite interesting. I mean, and I think a lot of people, you know, people tend to have different preferences. I mean, a lot of people will like to go in the English winter, will want to go to places in the Southern hemisphere um, to go to Cape Town or Johannesburg or um, Santiago or, or Buenos Aires or something. Um, I actually really like, um, I like kind of like snow. There's a, Pittsfield is a, is a pretty snowy place in, uh, where I grew up. There's a chapter on, on in Imagine a City, there's a, there's a chapter on, on cities and snow. Um, and so I, I really enjoy going to, to sort of extreme winter environments, uh, for, which, which for us often means Calgary or, or, or Montreal or Toronto in the winter. Um, so, so, so yeah, pilots have, uh, you know, individual preferences, which I think really more to the cities than to, than to the airports. Um, and, you know, I've, of, I've often said, I think I, I wrote this in Skyfaring, you know, if you, even if, even if you didn't like, uh, even if you didn't like being a pilot, um, it's, it's still an amazing job in a lot of ways because whatever it is you love, you get the whole world of it. And obviously I love flying, but, uh, you know, if you were into opera, well, you can, you can go to the world's greatest opera houses kind of as, you know, as much as you want. If, if you're into photography, a lot of my colleagues are into photography, like nature photography. And so they, you know, they end up bidding for trips to Phoenix or um, Johannesburg or something, places where they can get out and and see really unique countryside. And, and uh, in the case of South Africa, wildlife as well. So, it's a pretty, it's a pretty big world. And, uh, yeah, I've, I've never, I've never really had a strong preference between, um, between airports themselves, but it's really about the, um, the cities, the cities that lie beyond them. I would say, I would say on that note, there are some, some of the cities we go to, we are, um, you know, there's, it's just a much quicker process for us to get through, especially if there are cities that don't have a lot of international flights where we arrive at a time of day when many others flights are not arriving. Uh, and if you can be from the, uh, if you can get from the cockpit to the crew bus uh, in, you know, 15 or 20 minutes, as opposed to an hour, obviously that's, uh, <laughs> that's something that everybody likes. Well, I, well, this is the part, Mark, where I wanted to, I wanted to, I wanted to put your praise of Aerotropolis to the test here. And I'm curious, you know, be- between the city center and between the airport, you know, the most infamous non-place of all, are those sort of interstitial zones around airports? And I'm curious, as you know, as someone who has sampled far more cities than I have uh, in, a, in, in a professional and personal context, um, have you found any Aerotropolises, uh, so to speak, that are actually enjoyable, that are, are actually urbane? Because 
I, you know, I do find that, you know, at least in American culture, like out by the airport, you know, is <laughs> is typically shorthand for like some industrial wasteland, which is, I think, partly why we should try to ennoble those areas. But but I'm curious if you've seen anything in your travels, you know, that are actually enjoyable. I mean, I, I, Zurich's The Circle comes to mind and, you know, and Frankfurt has The Square as their effort, which is sort of a, a landscaper there. But, you know, have you come across any sort of notable airport city or aerotropolis areas that, you know, that would actually make you want to linger? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so, uh, you know, like many people, um, I, I love Singapore, uh, uh, Changi Airport, uh, which is just, you know, the, the airport itself is, um, you know, is beautiful and calming. And, you know, it's actually a destination for people in Singapore to, to go out to the airport for a few hours, um, which, I mean, I would do that anyways, <laughs> as, a, as a keen plane spotter if I lived there. Um, what, I'm trying to think of other places that are like that. I mean, I, I've been really... I've been really struck at, you know, around Heathrow, just to the, to the north of it, are a series of moors that you can go running on, um, Harmonsworth Moor and, and a few others. And, um, it, you know, you could actually, on a layover, you could actually you could actually just put your shorts on and go for a run. Um, and, and, and you end up in these incredibly bucolic settings. And you, you actually can't believe how close you are to Heathrow or to the M25, to the, um, to the ring road around London, which is there. And there's a barn there. Um, I can't remember exactly um exactly what its accolades are but it's it's one of the whatever kind of barn it is i'm i'm falling down here in terms of the facts but uh it's the oldest kind uh, of that barn in england and and it's it, you know and you, you you can run there and kind of come to the top of a hill and, and suddenly look and you see the control tower uh, at heathrow and you're like oh yeah i'm in i'm not in the uh, i'm not in the countryside exactly um in, in terms of aerotropolises, there's the, the very well-named Aero City, which is outside Delhi, um, outside Delhi's international airport, um, and uh, a lot of airline crews stay there. And it's it's uh, as the name suggests, its uh, its location is related to nearby airport. And uh, but there's a lot of a lot of um, tech workers who work there, and um, it's on the uh, the airport line, which gets you right into the center of Delhi very easily. And you know, I often when I'm there, my first inclination is to uh, is to go into Delhi. So I, I often in the morning after my flight in, I'll, I will, uh, you know, leave the hotel early before the, before the heat builds and, and walk to the subway station, to the metro station there. And as I'm walking to that metro station, um, to leave Aero City and, and to find my way into the actual city, you know, thousands of workers, um, of tech workers are coming out of the subway station to go to their jobs in Aero City. So, you know, over the years to come, I suspect that will become more and more of a destination. I, I don't know how many people live there. I haven't, I can't really gauge how many apartment buildings there are there, but there's certainly a lot of offices there, and it's a lot of people are coming are coming to work there for its, uh, you know, for its, uh, you know, original proximity to the airport, and now it's becoming a destination of its own. Do you guys have favorite? Um, do you guys have favorite airports to, uh, that you um, that you kind of are happy to fly into, or that you might go to a little earlier just to just to hang out a bit, or? Oh, well, that's a great question, Mark. I mean, some, as someone who loves a good airport lounge, I mean, when you put it that way, it breaks down to, to that. So, you know, I mean, he, he, the Virgin Clubhouse at Heathrow, I would happily move into if I was given the opportunity. Um, you know, in terms of favorite airports, I mean, you mentioned Singapore, of course, the Jewel, I believe, is the is the new extension of that one. I think Dan will correct me, but, you know, we hope to have Moshi Safdie on, uh, on the podcast very soon with his memoir coming out uh, to ask him about that and Habitat and his, and, uh, his many other great works of architecture. Um, I think my favorite airport is actually Schiphol. Um, I, there's something about the the layout of it, the fact that, you know, I think it's one of the few airports, you can correct me, Mark, 
where even arriving as an international passenger versus being herded down into into a customs hall without any sort of recourse, you can roam the terminal and so before you pass into customs. So it has a feeling of like arriving on a boulevard to me. I, and of course, you have the you know a branch of the Rijksmuseum there and a casino if you so choose. It has a sort of a ersatz quality to it that I really like. Um, Dan, what's your favorite? Um, I, I, I give high marks to uh, Copenhagen. Um, I think that's a, a pretty civilized seeming airport. And it was one where I wound up in a, with an unexpected delay. And um, it didn't seem so bad. It's like, oh, dear, I have to spend another day in Scandinavia. Woe is me. You know, uh, it has the timber floors. Um, it has the, um, the old style uh, analog clocks that are... Um, actually pretty ubiquitous in European train stations, but not so much in, in airports. Um, it had some very good restaurants, as I recall. Now, this was an experience of perhaps 20 years ago, so it, it's probably only better since then. Um, but I, I get the sense that the Scandinavians uh, have applied all of their design <laughs> capability to, to airports. Um, I love I love Kostrup, the 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 airport for Copenhagen, and you know the, yeah the, all the Scandinavian ones are are, are great. Um, Oslo's is very very beautiful and lots of wood, and um, you know Vancouver as well. I think is a unique airport. I mean you can they've got this kind of water feature there, um, not quite Singapore and it's Singaporean in its dimensions, but um, you can kind of smell that fresh water when you when you come off the plane and you think oh I'm in this I'm in a I know exactly where I am, which isn't a feeling you often have in airports. Um, my one of my co- I have some family in Sweden, and one of my cousins actually got married at Arlanda, um, which I think is not so unusual that you can get married at the airport in, in Stockholm and then go off on your honeymoon together. Um, so, uh, so for some people, that's a that'll be the most important airport in their lives, maybe. I've yeah, I've certainly participated in those trend stories about things you can do at airports, and yes, getting married at Arlanda was one of them. Um, it's a very interesting case. Well, I guess this perhaps is a, is a last question or bring us back around here towards close, Mark, is, is I'm curious your thoughts of nostalgia on this. I mean, it, you know, it's obviously given, you know, given the, uh, the, the, you know, perhaps impossible to reduce carbon footprint of our air travel. I mean, it's great that we can reminisce and discuss this. But I, of course, I remember having to defend uh, global aviation in my book at length. And I'm curious about to the extent to which are you ever shamed or by, by other people? Or do you ever feel a sense that, you know, that, that this era has to end to some extent and, and perhaps more local lives come from there? I mean, you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, writing Aerotropolis, you know, I thought the world would end in ice under peak oil. And now it appears the world may end in fire. But, um, you know, can we can we solve that tension? Are you hopeful? Um, I, I am hopeful. Um, you know, I the the climate crisis has, has become you know next to safety. It's become our most important um, focus at work, really. And you know, I, I was very sad when the seven forty sevens stopped flying, or most of them stopped flying after the uh, the start of the pandemic. But uh, the seven eight seven I fly now is, is about a third more efficient, and you know, it feels it feels good to um, it feels good to to be flying that more efficient plane. Um, there was. Uh, an article in the Economist in uh, in August, I think, uh, a pretty pretty lengthy article about the challenges of decarbonization in in aviation. Um, and you know, they had I think it was there that I saw a statistic that was something like, you know, a, a battery, a kilogram of battery has about a fiftieth of the power of a kilogram of of, uh, of jet fuel. So, which you know, that that makes the scale of the technical challenge quite clear. Um, and you know, they were talking about in the in the short term battery powered aircraft for for shorter range flights. Obviously, some offsets uh, required for that transition. And then, 
you know, for the, the challenge for, for medium and long range flights is, you know, is really that you, it's, it's hard to imagine being able to do that with batteries. So you need to come up with either hydrogen or, uh, or synthetic fuels. And, uh, they had a pretty good description of, of, of those options. The, um, you know, there's the possibility you can, you can make synthetic av aviation fuel now, which is, which is being done now from agricultural products. Um, you can also extract it directly from the air um, if you have enough energy to do it. Uh, and that, of course, that energy needs to be clean uh, energy to start with. Um, so it was pretty, it was sort of a cautiously optimistic view uh, of the sector. And, you know, one of the things the pandemic has also made clear to me is, you know, is the importance that people attach to travel. Um, uh, and, you know, not just not just for these personal experiences, which are and and kinds of connection, which are so important to so many people, but I think about a third of the world's uh, trade by by value, um, not not by volume, obviously, but by value, travels by air. Um, we got a sense of that during the pandemic, and and now as the pandemic enters a new phase, we're seeing how much people want to travel. They want to have those experiences, and uh, we've got to find a way to do it uh, in in a greener way because because it's it's clearly a very very important part of our sense of a modern life and of uh, the the rising middle classes all around the world who who look at travel as well as, as an important part of uh, of modern life. So we've got to find a way to do it effectively and, and, and in a greener way. Mark, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. You are an international man of mystery and the true sense. Uh, and thank you for making this, this, this uh, amazing occupation uh, seem a little less mysterious and more relatable. Um, you've done a, done a great work with uh, Imagine a City, and I'm looking forward to uh, getting into skyfaring too. Um, so uh, everyone go out and get this book, Imagine the City, A Pilot's Journey Across the Urban World, Mark Van Honecker. Oh, thank you so much, guys. It was a real pleasure to, uh, to connect with you, and I hope to, uh, hope to see you in person sometime. Indeed. Let's, let's do it at an airport. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds great. Airport lounge. <laughs> exactly. Right, exactly. Thank you so much.